Uh, I just want to lay out a general principle for you this morning, and that is that growth or growing, while it is generally considered to be a good thing, can often be painful. Uh, I wanted, when I was a kid, to be taller. Uh, My brother was tall. I played basketball. I didn't know how tall I was going to get, but my goal was to grow and to be taller. Um, So I planned it out. I was ready to grow. I did everything you do, like, you know, ate and slept and drank lots of milk and did all those things, hoping that I would get taller. Uh, And then it happened. The summer that I was 14, I grew three inches. Yeah. Um, Growing seems like a good thing. But growing that fast, um, I was not prepared what that was going to feel like. And I very well remember what it felt like for my legs to grow these few inches over that one summer. I would lay in my bed at night, my legs just aching as my body relentlessly worked its way toward being taller. Wayne, you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) So that when I got my driver's license at the age of 16, uh, I was six foot one, 135 pounds. That's right. I was, I was stretched out, if you will. My point is that some experiences, while uh, the end result may be good or may be what you wanted or you've moved to a place of growth, they may have a difficult path for you to reach that end. Now, there have been many times in my life when God moved me to a new place, but moving to that new place or that better place or that place of growth was not always a pleasant experience. Uh, Some of the biggest moves in my life were reached through difficulty or pain or suffering of some kind. And before I go much further with this thought, I want to make one thing clear. And I've made this clear to you over the years, but I just want to restate this in this moment. When things go wrong, we often want to ask or look at God as the cause of whatever is going on in our lives, and quickly try to move to the question of what is God trying to teach me through this adversity that I'm facing in my life. And one of the things that I have learned over the years is that God does not necessarily put me through pain in order to teach me something. When we think about our pain or our suffering or difficulties this way, It makes God the cause of something that may be causing some serious damage in our lives. And so, again, we've talked about this in great depth, and if you have more questions about this, I can refer you back to the sermons where I cover this in much more detail. God is not the cause of our suffering. The role that God plays is is that he is the redeemer of our suffering. He is, he takes what is broken and makes something new out of that brokenness. Therefore, it's why the biggest lesson that we must always learn through our suffering is to simply trust God, that he will do something with whatever it is that is going on in our lives. But this is a, this is a dangerous line that we walk when we talk about these things. 
Because if something awful has happened in your life, something that you know you're just never going to get over, what happens to you if you think that God caused that to teach you something? That's a heavy burden to carry and can change the way that you view and see and relate to God. Now, why am I bringing this up and starting us out on such a low note? It's because the Christian movement in the book of Acts was a movement that was powered by the presence of God, the grace of Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. And they experienced the miraculous, and people were responding to the good news of Jesus by the thousands. And it seemed like what Jesus told his apostles in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where he said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth was going to happen quickly and easily because the word was spreading so fast. And within very little time, this new Christian movement was forming into a powerful group of people within the city of Jerusalem. But in spite of this incredible success, the movement faced ever-increasing opposition, which we've looked at over the past couple of weeks. First, Peter and John were brought before the Sanhedrin, and they were warned, but they were released uh, because the leaders didn't want to stir up the anger of the people. And then uh, in the second sort of series of this, all of the apostles were arrested, put in jail, broken out of jail by an angel, brought before the Sanhedrin again, warned, flogged this time, and then released. So we see that things are escalating a bit. And this opposition caused some to be cautious about joining this growing movement. Because as we talked about for the first time last week, people were starting to realize that joining this group of Christians might have some negative repercussions. There were some people who didn't agree and they very, very energetically didn't agree. And things were quickly shifting from disagreement to standing in opposition to one another. But none of this really stopped people from responding to the gospel, and the persecution the apostles faced only motivated them more to go out and and tell people about Jesus. And as we saw at the end of our story last week, even when they were flogged, To the point of where they could have died, they considered it a sign that they were on the right track because after all, Jesus suffered and died. So in Acts chapter 6, which is where we're going to be today, this is what we see happening at the the start of this section from Acts chapter 6, verse 7. It says, So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Okay, so we see that not only was there rapid growth, but even those who were priests were becoming followers of Jesus. Now, there were many poor priests in the area of Palestine at this time, perhaps as many as 8,000, and they received little support from the temple priests and had to support themselves primarily with their own hands through manual labor. And they had little in common with the priests who actually ran the temple. So we see something happening with this new Christian movement that we saw happening when Jesus was out and about. And that was that those who were poor, those who uh, were, were in, a, in, in life where life was difficult for them, they were hearing the message of Jesus and they were coming to believe in him. Now there's this guy named Stephen 
And Stephen was one of the seven who was chosen to serve at the beginning of chapter 6. And he drew the attention of these people who opposed the spreading of the gospel. So Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 10, introduces us to him a little bit more completely. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. So there are some significant descriptions here about Stephen, a guy that we really don't know a lot about. Luke began by telling us that Stephen is full of God's grace and power. As one of the seven that were chosen at the beginning of Acts chapter 6, he met the qualifications for being filled with the spirit of wisdom and was personally described as being full of faith in the Holy Spirit. So Stephen is a good dude who is doing the things that God wants him to do, and he is full of God's power and the Spirit. Faith, wisdom, grace, power, and above all, the presence of the Spirit were the personal qualities that equipped him to go out and to start telling other people about Jesus. And Stephen is the first one, other than the apostles, to be described as using the power of the Holy Spirit to work miracles. So even though we have never heard of Stephen before chapter 6, what do we know about him? He is a presence within this new community. He is someone that is clearly caught on to the work that God is doing. And so these people have risen up to oppose him. And they've come to argue against him, but the Spirit gave him such wisdom that even though they disagreed with him completely, when they tried to argue with him, they couldn't. (laughs) And I love this. Why? Because the Spirit was giving him the ability to make too much sense. And this frustrated them. So they took the next logical step. If they couldn't argue against him, If he made too much sense and they couldn't bring this background and stop him this way, they took the next logical step, which is they made things up in order to discredit Stephen. So from Acts chapter 6, verses 11 through 15. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen And they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Okay, so the Greek word that is here in this passage is really stronger than the NIV's translation of secretly persuaded. Um, and, And what the actual kind of meaning of this word is, is they didn't just secretly persuade, but it they put someone up to something and gave them the words to say. So there's a little bit of strong-arming going on here. 
And it's these certain people who oppose Stephen who are trying to give them this specific message. And what is the message? What is it they're, that they're trying to say about Stephen and who he is? Well, they're trying to say that Stephen is, it's a great word, a blasphemer, right? Blasphemer is a great word. Um, are you listening to another sermon? Well, <laughs> just kidding. Um, and, and the specific reason why he is a blasphemer, they say, is that he's speaking out against two things. Moses, who was given the law by God, and God himself. So the word about him spread quickly, and we see for the first time uh, something changed, something that's different than all of these other encounters we've seen before. And that is, it's not just the religious leaders or the teachers who are upset with Stephen. This time quote-unquote, the people are involved. And before the Sanhedrin, these false witnesses spoke of more blasphemy. They said uh, that he has spoken against the temple, that, that Jesus would destroy the temple and would destroy the law. And these are, are kind of very similar accusations, if you think about it, that Jesus faced in Mark chapter 14, verses 57 through 58, that he had threatened to destroy the temple and to tear it down in three days. So this is pretty serious, guys. These things that these people have brought forward against Stephen are way elevated than what Peter and John faced and what the apostles faced. And, and these people have gone so far as to try to, as to, pry, as to, try to paint Stephen in such a negative way that he seems like just the worst possible person. And that they say through these false witnesses and everything else that he basically wants to tear everything down about who we are. And we can't let him do this. And then they all look at Stephen to see how Stephen is reacting to these charges. And what does he look like? He looks like an angel. What does that mean? It's a picture of someone who is filled with the Spirit. And, and above all, the way that I would put it, is the dude's not sweating. Like, these are really serious charges, and he is not worried at all about this. He's not worried about what they're saying, because Stephen, in this moment, filled with the Spirit and taking out the message of God, realizes something that I think we miss a lot of times in trouble and in pain and suffering and hardship, is that there's really nothing to be afraid of. He had nothing to be afraid of. And he did reply to all these charges. We're not going to read the whole thing. Uh, and his commentary on Luke, Willem Willimon, uh, sums up Stephen's speeches nicely. So we're going to use uh, his shorter descriptions to, to lead us through it. So basically what Stephen's response to all of these charges and things, what he says is, Basically, you have a lot of nerve to charge that I have violated anything because look at yourself. Which is a great message to give to people who are super angry at you. And he starts with Abraham. 
He recounted for his audience the long journey of faith which began with God's promise to bring Abraham, Abraham's people to a place where they may worship. And then he talked about Joseph, Joseph whom his own brothers sold into slavery. Even as far back as Joseph, there was conflict within uh, the family of Abraham, yet God was with Joseph and the effort of his brothers to send him away and to sell him into slavery just furthered God's plans. So even though they tried to stop Joseph, God used what happened to Joseph to further what God wanted to do. And you want to talk about Moses? Fine, let's talk about Moses. Since you're saying, I'm trying to undo everything he wants to do. So he recounts the story of Moses in, in loving detail, showing that he can't be justly accused of blasphemy against Moses because he thinks so highly of Moses. And he reminded his audience that Moses in his day was not really liked by the people he was leading. And that oftentimes they refused to obey him. And here was the one who was sent by God to deliver them, to be their savior and their liberator. And, and, and they often failed to recognize him as such. Asking him a few times even, who made you a ruler and judge over us? And Stephen says this caused Moses at certain points to even want to flee and run away. Just He was so tired of trying to lead this people that wouldn't listen to him even though God had empowered him to lead. And then the speech changes from this recounting of the stories to an indictment of God's people. And with one blow after another, Stephen told his hearers that it was this Moses, the deliverer, who they refused. From rebellion against Moses, the people degenerated to idolatry. Simeon had foretold that Jesus would occasion the fall and rising of many in Israel when he first met Jesus in Luke chapter 2, verse 34. And you may remember, too, that Jesus, in his first sermon at the synagogue in Nazareth, he reminded the congregation of the unpleasant testimony of history that no prophet is acceptable in his own country. In Luke chapter 4, verse 24. And I don't know if you remember what happened to Jesus after he told them that he was the one that was promised and no prophet is honored in his own country. Do you remember what they tried to do to him? They tried to throw him off a cliff. But Jesus moved back through them. So Stephen, by turning the community's own scripture back on itself, he reminded them that the community has always been rebellious and idolatrous and can very easily be so again. And after he said all of this, then he really let them have it. From Acts chapter 7, verses 51 through 53. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? The answer is no. They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. And now the whole point of Stephen's speech becomes clear. 
He took them through these stories to show them Moses, Joseph, all these people, they were not listened to. They were chased out even though they were the voice of God. And now, are you saying that you're any better? Because you're not. You are just like them because God sent his son to this place. And guess what you did with him? You killed him. They, not Stephen, were the ones who were the real lawbreakers, who were disregarding all that God was doing and killed the Messiah sent to deliver his people. And it is at this point in the story, because, you know, this passionate speech that Stephen gives isn't so different than the speech that Peter and John gave or that the apostles gave in response to all these things. It's, it's not even so different from the first sermon that Peter got up and preached. But it is at this point that the story takes a different path than those we have read before. And in these previous encounters, we have seen the the leaders, those in charge, we have seen them sort of take these measured approaches. I mean, just last week, we looked at the words of Gamaliel. If God is behind this, then we are just going to end up fighting against him. But this time, there is no strategy or measured reply. There is only tantrum, anger, and violence. From chapter 7, verses 54 through 60. When the members of Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Now, there is so much in this story that should remind you of another story. And that's on purpose. This was not a formal trial. It was a mob scene. Did you know that there was an official way to stone people if they were found guilty? This was new information to me. So um, in formal stonings, victims were stripped and pushed over a cliff 10 to 12 feet high which might have been what they were trying to do with Jesus to lead to stoning him. They were then rolled over on their chests, and the first witness, because it was the witnesses who carried out this act, it was not the Sanhedrin itself, would get a boulder or a stone as big as they could possibly get and roll it off the cliff above the person who was going to be stoned. The idea being that this first drop of this big stone would potentially kill the person. If the victim survived the first smashing, then the second witness would get a boulder or stone as large as they could get and throw it down on top of the person. But the picture of what we see here with Stephen is radically different. None of these steps were followed. In fact, the opposite happens. They don't strip Stephen down. They strip themselves, evidently, to give them greater freedom for throwing. 
And what we see, too, is Stephen is alive through much of this process. That he's praying and he's, he's interacting and saying things as these stones are coming on him. And his death wasn't instantaneous as it was supposed to be. It was drawn out and painful. And, and two side things to note. One, it's not clear that the Sanhedrin itself took place because we know that the people or the mob are there, and, and that's kind of how they're described going forward. And two, uh, it was pretty clear that the Sanhedrin did not have the power to execute during the Roman period, which was one of the reasons why they took Jesus before Pilate. But of course, none of that mattered. Because the angry mob, they're the ones that took things into their own hands. And then in his death, Stephen echoed the words of Jesus as he died as only the one who was full of the Spirit could. Now, it's an awful story, isn't it? It's an awful story. This event changed everything. It changed everything because it broke the seal. You know what that term means? When you break the seal on something, it is now open. And what did it break the seal on? Violence against Christians. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. It was no longer necessary, you see, to act with restraint. The people themselves had acted against the Christian movement. And from this point forward, for a long, long time, it was no longer safe to be a follower of Jesus. Now, what do we learn from this story? This is a hard story for us to digest and apply because we live in such a different time and place. And again, as we spoke about last week a little bit, our first reaction, the most visceral reaction we have to this is, this is awful, this is unjust, and this should not happen. Because we profess to believe that people should believe, be able to believe or worship how they want to because we live in a country that has forwarded that belief. But guys, let's be honest with ourselves a little bit. How tolerant are we of people that believe differently than us? Something we have to realize is this. The gospel has always faced opposition, and it always will. And our thinking that that is unjust is just poor thinking on our part. We think this should not be the case. We think that everyone should believe in Jesus and behave accordingly. And we wonder how it is that people reject God and reject Jesus. And it is at these times when we start thinking this way that we forget the teachings of Jesus himself. When he said that the kingdom would divide not just people outside of your home, but people within your home. Fathers from sons, daughters from mothers, 
that the kingdom and the gospel would be divisive because, guess what? The gospel is always going to face opposition from inside and from out. And even though this doesn't seem possible in these moments when we think about these stories in this, in this way, we forget that Jesus died as a political prisoner and one who was put in that position by those who supposedly loved and served God. So we can't forget this. And remember, we talked a few weeks ago about what the apostles must have been thinking, because remember, their leader was brutally killed in front of them. And then they were having all this success, and even when things came to stand against them. And if I were Peter or if I were John, I would have been asking myself, okay, like this is awesome, but when is the other shoe going to drop? Because while God is doing amazing things, Jesus hit the wall, right? So I think they had to understand, too, the opposition is coming. So then what is most important? For us, it seems, well, there shouldn't be opposition, or we should eliminate the opposition. But to them, their mindset and their view of it all was completely different, It wasn't that they should eliminate the opposition. It was that opposition is coming, and so therefore what matters the most is how we handle it going forward, who we are when the opposition comes, who we are when they come and ask for everything from us. Are we willing to give it in the name of Jesus? Because God will give success. We're seeing this, that God will give success, but he will not overcome all opposition. Do you know why? Because people are going to choose to reject God and his kingdom and the gospel, and God will not make them choose him. And some of those people are going to, in turn, stand against the spread of the gospel and those who want to take Jesus out into the world. And God has known this since when? Genesis chapter 3? Through the power of the Holy Spirit, those who follow Jesus will have wisdom and power, but they will not be conquering heroes, you see. Was Jesus a conquering hero? Well, in some ways, yes, but not in the traditional way. They won't be conquering heroes, but they seem to understand that this, that wasn't what they signed up for anyway. I mean, after all, when your leader willingly gave his life for all of humanity when he didn't have to, Doesn't that set an ethic or principle before you that you may be called or should be called to do the same thing? So they understand that they signed up to represent the God who willingly sacrificed himself for the people he loved. We also see that growth is hard. It's not always standing up in front of people and thousands coming forward and saying, oh my goodness, you're right. Sometimes it's standing up in front of people and then being angry with you 
and saying that you're doing everything wrong and that you're pushing people away. And something weird happens because people stand up to oppose the gospel. Remember, where did Jesus want the gospel to go? Everywhere. And what happens because the church is persecuted? What happens to those who, these thousands that now believe? They scatter. And guess what happens when they scatter? They are now no longer just spreading the gospel in Jerusalem. They're spreading the gospel everywhere. And this circle is starting to widen and get bigger. Did God cause these people to persecute the church to make them spread? No, there's no indication of that. That's not part of that story. But what does God do through the persecution of the church? He takes something that is just objectively not great and uses it to accomplish what needs to be accomplished. Just like when Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, God used that movement to bring into power in Egypt someone who could change the world. And so the last thing we see, which may be the hardest one for us to accept, is that there is no easy, pain-free path to being like Jesus. We can look for it. We can pray for it. But that's never what Jesus promised us when we would follow him. He didn't promise us that things would be easy or pain-free. What he promised us is that through his power we would overcome. And you know what? You can't overcome if you don't face opposition. But we have a God who has overcome for us. Amen? He has overcome sin and death that we might have life forever with him. And so maybe this is the final thing that the disciples understood that we need to wrap our minds around. The worst thing these people thought they could have done to Stephen was kill him. But through killing him, they only united him with his God faster. And therefore, even as Stephen was on his knees, being pelted with rocks, guess what? He still had nothing to be afraid of. Because death was not the end for him. He's a child of God, a follower of Jesus. And therefore, Jesus has promised him that he would have life beyond his death. And that's the same thing that we are promised as well. That it's not about what you're losing, it's what you gain even when you lose. For those who lose their life will find it. These are tough lessons for us to learn. They're tough things for us to understand. So as we close this morning, let's pray for wisdom, for guidance, for God to help us to see who we are 
in the middle of these stories of sacrifice, of dedication, of passion in taking the gospel out into the world. Let's pray together. God, we are so grateful for Jesus. We are grateful for the example that he set for us, but Father, it is a difficult example. It is an example of sacrifice and giving so much even to the point of death. And God, we are now seeing the followers of Jesus follow that same path, that speaking of the gospel, that that saying the name of Jesus out loud could cause them to lose their lives. But Father, we are most convicted by the courage and the perspective that they have about these things. Father, I want to have this same perspective and outlook. I want to understand that being a follower of Jesus means sacrifice and giving up of myself. So God, show me the ways in which I need to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.